Buglers, we are live from Leicester Square Theatre on the 16th of September with Chris Addison and Alice Fraser. It might be our only London date of the year, so get your tickets now. Oh, get them at thebuglepodcast.com. That, that bit's important. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This is a podcast from The Bugle. Welcome to Tiny Revolutions, the podcast where I talk to some of my favourite creators about the work that inspires them, the political movements, the films, the music, the books, everything, all of it. This week's guest is a huge inspiration. She's a very, very funny woman and uh, basically a polymath. She's doing a lot of stuff. Put your hands together, go wild, go crazy. And when I say put your hands together, I mean just me and you. It's Jeannie Yashere. <laughs> yeah, I'm putting my hands together. How are you? You're in LA right now. I'm in LA right now and I've got builders at the house. So you're going to be interrupted by various bangs and scrapes and drilling noises. So, yeah. It's... Not a euphemism. Gina's yeah. got the builders in. Not a euphemism. And I'm so excited to have Gina on because she's very funny. She's always been very funny she's inspiring in lots of ways uh, to me especially with the move to america which we will talk about a bit in depth later on but firstly let's talk about you as a tiny person and as a tiny revolution how did you end up doing this was this by design or by accident because i know you were at one point a lift engineer so how did you become genie yashere comedian writer entertainer I was an engineer. My mum wanted me to be a doctor because obviously we're Nigerians and it's doctor, lawyer, accountant, <laughs> engineer. That's Those are the choices. So I couldn't stand the sight of blood. I discovered that 18 A-level <laughs> biology. We had to cut open a rat. And I was like, yeah, this isn't for me. I don't want to I don't want to see oozy things. I couldn't even look at my own f-ing period. So I was like, this, this doctor thing is not going to work. So I switched to engineering. After school, um, I got into uni to study for an engineering degree, but then I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to be beholden to my mum for money anymore, you know, because she was so overprotective, she wouldn't let me do anything, go anywhere. So I was like, I need a job so I can have a car, so I can go out and party and do Live. the things that I want to do. So I'm going to get a job as a trainee engineer and study for my degree and whatnot part time while earning money so I can live life, and that's what I did. So I, after A levels. I uh, didn't turn up for university. Or for, I just didn't turn up. And uh, I uh, applied for jobs. And my first job was with what was at the time Ilya, in a London education authority. So I got a job as a training engineer there. I was there for like less than a year, bored out of my brain, because it's all bureaucracy. They were like, yeah, you're an engineer, but I sat in an office most of the time. And you get to go to a school and check their VCRs every six months. So I was like, well, this isn't, <laughs> this isn't engineering. This is, not a, what, this is not what I consider then. So then I left there and worked for British Telecom for a while. I was in a telephone exchange, wiring up telephone lines. So I did that for about a year and a half. Ooh. And I enjoyed that. That was fun. But then once I'd learned how to wire up a line and telephone exchange and... Uh, listened and punked enough people on their lines because you, you had to listen to people's I was gonna say yeah. I bet that the temptation to do that must be overwhelming right oh, you gotta get involved we, we, used to, <laughs> we, used to, we used to prank kiss fm like we used to just oh yes and, and go on their lines and just get out and then just put the phone down in the middle of their broadcast it was ridiculous so I did that for a while that was fun and then I got bored of that and then I saw this advert to work for Otis building and repairing lifts and I was and I've always been scared of lifts I never got in one by myself 
Um, I've seen too many. You know, Take I, tackling your fears head on. I feel yeah. like this is the beginning of a yeah. journey of Gina taking on the scariest yeah. thing. I never liked lifts. I would never get in one by myself. I've seen too many horror stories. Yes, I saw a job advertising to you know be a training engineer with Otis, and I thought that sounds amazing. Let me, I can confront my fears head on because then I know how these things work. And yeah, and I get to be out on building sites and climb up high buildings and ride on top of lifts. This sounds amazing. So I applied for that job and I got it. And I was the first female engineer that Otis had had in the UK in their 100 year history, which sounds great. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, it sounds yes. great, but it was absolutely awful. First woman. And then by this time, I'd been studying engineering. So you take all the shit. All the shit. All the misogyny, all like they literally had pictures of tits in front of me, everything. And then I was a woman and black coming into that industry. The racism was, you know, you're on building sites. There's no, there's no HR. There's no human resources to go to. There's, you know, I'd come into work in yep. the morning and they'd hung a picture of a monkey above my overalls, or I'd find banana uh, skins in my pockets and shit like that. So wow, that's it was awful, not a fun awful. job as far as that's concerned. But I loved the actual engineering aspect of it. And I stuck it out for four years and I had to threaten a few people. Like there was one guy who was so racist. He used to say really terrible stuff, like use the N-word in front of my face. And in the end, I pulled him aside and I was like, listen, um, if I hear you say the word nigga one more time, I've got two brothers and I'll send them around your f***ing house. I know where you live, dude. And he never spoke to me again. He <laughs> yes. never spoke to me again. Yes. Never uttered the words in front of me again. Sometimes they need to just hear what the consequences of their yeah. actions said, and yeah, words might I, be. Yeah, I've sent two of them around your house to give you a good old beating. So you keep talking like that, mate. I know where you live. So keep on. And he stopped. And then, you know. But, you know, after four years, I left that job because um, I was the first woman engineer. They didn't know what to do with me. So, you know, I, I got all the qualifications, I did all the right things, and I go, right, I'm supposed to manage my own site right now. I'm supposed to manage my own route where I can drive around with my pager by myself. And, yeah. turn, and they were like, yeah, well, you know, we're worried if you fall down a lift shaft and, you know, break your ovaries, you might sue us. <laughs> right. So, so even the lift has a glass ceiling. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and they're like, so we'll put you with these. So they kept putting me with other guys to work with. Like I was there, I was to be babysat the whole time. And I was like, no, this is not how this works. I'm supposed so in the end, I was like, I, uh, I went to the union. I was like, listen, I'm being discriminated against. I've been paying into the, the, my union dues for the last four years. How about you come and represent me at a grievance hearing? And this is what my union rep said to my face. My union rep was like, ah, yeah, I don't know about all this women's lib stuff, sorry. And they did not turn up to represent me. I'd been paying union dues for four years and my union refused to represent me. What are we talking? What era are we talking? Is this 90s, early 2000s? This was 1995, something like 94, 94, 94. So yeah, they refused to represent me. I had a grievance hearing with the top brass at Otis unrepresented by my union. I went in by myself and had to fight my own case. And obviously I lost. It was me and a bunch of old white dudes and no rep. So they were like, nah, we don't think we're doing anything wrong. Uh, case dismissed. So after that, they were making, uh, the building industry went through a slump in sort of uh, early 94. They, were, they started making engineers redundant. They were never going to make me redundant because I was on all their brochures. Oh, look at us. Right, yeah, black of course. Girl. Look at us. We are so ahead of our time. But I just stomped into my manager's office. And I was like, you're going to make me redundant. I want that redundancy money and just let me go because I don't want to work here anymore. And if you don't want me to go public with the racism and misogyny that I've suffered on this company, how about you just give me my, give me my money, money and let me go. <laughs> and they were like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to give you some money and let you go. <laughs> <laughs> so I left and it was... You know, after I left Otis, people, you know, I was like, well, I'm going to take, it was in the summer of 94, actually, that this happened. So I was like, I'm going to enjoy my summer. I'm going to have, I've got this money. I've got a, a, a flat with, with uh, the rent was only £150 a month. Oh, the days, Gina, yeah, the I days. Little, I had a little Honda CRX that I loved and they've given me a few grand. I'm going to enjoy the summer and then look for another job in the winter. So while I was having my summer off, I was like, let me try all these things that people said that I should do. Because as a kid, 
te- my, I remember a drama teacher saying to my mum, you, you know, your daughter's very lively, she's very, you know, she should be in the arts, she should be an actor or something like that. Uh, at parents' England, and my mum, I remember my mum looking at this drama teacher and going, yeah, she can act like a doctor when she becomes a doctor. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> and, that, and that was the end of my arts dreams. I didn't know that I could do comedy. I didn't know there was such a thing. I watched comedy as a kid. I loved Kenny Everett as a kid. Kenny Everett was... Oh, I yeah. never really Kenny. watched stand-up. I didn't... I never... You know, I never... I, I, but I watched funny stuff. Like, I watched Lenny Henry because he was the only black guy on TV when I was a kid. So we watched everything he did. Um, but, yeah, I remember being in love with Kenny Everett. I thought his sketches were hilarious. And even years later, finding out what he got away with, like Cupid's stunt. Like, yes, yes. I had yeah. no idea. And so even years later, as an adult, realising what he got away with on television uh, made me respect his comedy even more. I remember some of Kenny Everett's sketches like they were yesterday. There was the Cupid stunt where she, he, he crossed his legs again. <laughs> in the best possible taste. There was her. There was since not. He had this guy that dressed in leather and he was like... Oh. A punk. Yeah, was he a like, punk? Was he, he like the young of, ones? Oh no, he had a punk with the mohawk and he had this guy who was in complete leathers. And, oh yeah, was Sid Snot the punk? Maybe Sid Snot was the punk. I think and, it might have been, yeah, yeah. Another guy who dressed in like the leathers that the gay boys used to wear in America in the, in the 80s. And then he do impersonations. Like he's, I remember this Rod Stewart. You remember Rod Stewart back in the day used to wear really yeah. tight leather, tight leather skin <laughs> pants and... And he, he was doing this sketch where he was singing Rod Stewart's Do You Think I'm Sexy? And as he's singing the song, his ass in these leopard skin pants is getting bigger and bigger <laughs> and bigger. And his ass is just growing. And then the end, it gets so big that he, he, he floats off into the air because his ass has turned into this massive balloon. And that sketch makes, made me laugh so hard as a kid. And I found it on YouTube recently. And it still makes me die laughing. And then there was another Spider-Man sketch where he was Spider, and it's like Spider-Man, Spider-Man, and he's swinging through, you know, through the air and through, on buildings and everything. And then he's dying for peace, so he jumps in through a, a bathroom window, and he's running to the toilet, and he's dying for peace. And then he, there's no zip on his suit; he can't get, he can't get his dick out of his suit because <laughs> it's a Spider-Man suit. And then he just pisses himself in the suit, and he just ends up walking slowly out of the bathroom while shaking pee off his leg. Just <laughs> hilarious! This is the shit I used to watch when I came home from school. So he was definitely, you know, he didn't influence me into getting into comedy because I thought comedy was just the white guy on television's game. So I didn't think that it was a thing that I could do. But when I left engineering and, you know, I was like, let me try. Everybody kept telling me I was funny at school. Let me, you know, see, you know, and a friend of mine told me that these guys, these black comics called Jefferson and Whitford, who were quite big on the black comedy scene in the 90s, were doing like a stand-up workshop. Right. Okay. And yeah, that and all before that, I joined the Nation of Islam. Yeah, I was in the Nation of Islam for a while. What? Oh, yeah. hello. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it's all in my book. Tiff, it's all in my book. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. So this was before you started doing stand-up? Or? Yeah. After the horrendous racism that I'd suffered at Otis, I, beca- I was like, I need to know about my black history. I need to know why white people are so evil. And <laughs> <laughs> so I went to, I was going to these black meetings of people who learned about the black history and, and all the stuff that they never taught you at school, how black people were not just slaves, that we, you know, that we were kings and queens, that we had amazing civilised societies before white people did and they came and they copied some of the stuff that we and all that and, and stole everything and, 
and burn down our cities and stuff like that. So I didn't know any of this because it wasn't taught to us at school. Of course, yeah. You know, yeah. what we were taught was that we were slaves. You know, I remember during history lesson, they bring out that ubiquitous diagram of how slaves were laid out in the ships. I went, oh, yeah. And I remember that our history teacher using words like, yes, we went to Africa to... For, for labour, it was an exchange of labour, and it's like, oh wow, no, yes. it was not an exchange of labour. It was people theft. It was people, but obviously that's how they taught us at school. So I didn't really have a concept. Well, I didn't know till 2017 that we were still paying reparations, not reparations to slaves yeah. or descendants of slaves, but to the reparations owners of to the owners. Yeah, it's disgusting. It's absolutely. Disgusting. And then you sort of dig into like, you, you kind of dig into like histories of families and you go, oh, okay, like you own this land, you have this, and then you made all this money off the backs of, of having, it's yeah, slaves. Enslaved black people. And, the, and then all these countries that are still in debt, like Haiti is in so much debt to France, not because they're, they're useless black people that can't manage their money, it's because when they freed themselves from slavery, France was like, oh, I free yourselves, Black people run back to Haiti, but I tell you what, we're going to blow up your island unless you pay us wow. for the slaves that we've lost. Right. So you want your freedom, you're going to have to pay us for your freedom. And so Haiti has been in debt ever since the France, because France was like, well, we're losing money because you guys want to be human beings. Yes, you expect to be treated like you're equal. Yeah. So, wow. you know, yeah. so yeah. this is stuff that was not taught to me at school. You know, my first real inkling of our history was when Roots came out. Roots, the TV show, and I was like, oh! Because I don't, you know, we, as a black African, a kid of African immigrants, I knew my history as an African, because my mother was very proud of her African history. But at school, you know, the Caribbean kids used to, they, they, they're like, we're not Africans. We're Jamaican, we're this, we're that. We're not for Africans or animals. You guys run around naked with bones for your noses and all that kind of stuff. So they were, you know, they hadn't even been educated to the fact that they were originally from Africa. They didn't know. They thought that there were different types of black people, that there were black people who were from the Caribbean. And then there were those animals that were in Africa, but they were separate people. They had no idea that they were descendants of people stolen out of Africa. So at school... I wasn't having problems with white kids calling me names. It was other black kids that I was constantly getting into fights with and calling me names because I was always being called African this and African that by other black kids because they had not been educated to their own history. So that was my school up. You know, the British Empire ruled the entire planet at one point. So racism is stitched into the fabric of U the UK society. Stitched. They were the biggest. Europe was the biggest slaves. Yeah. Brits, every bank in Britain is built on slavery. Most businesses, the royal family earned most of their money from slavery and colonialism. Most of that money. And you see statues for people who are like merchants, businessmen, and you're like, oh, and slavers. hundreds and hundreds of slaves. They were yeah. all slavers. So people think, oh, no, Britain is just class. It's all very genteel. The racism is, it's not. The Brits and, and Europeans, the Portuguese, the Spanish, the Dutch were evil evil slavers so you know and and they did a point they did a number on black people in that they made you know they educated us into feeling inferior and thinking that we were inferior and you know they made us feel inferior to justify treating us like animals and it it, 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 it that it, that false education and false narrative was passed down through generations and this is why at school i had caribbean kids calling me monkey calling me names because they had been educated that Africans were animals and barbaric. You watch every Tarzan movie, it was this white guy running around in the jungle, managing everything, you know, and, and be, trying to invade black people, cooking people in pots. And that's how Africans were perceived. So then black people in England or the Caribbean black people were like, well, we're not that. We're not those people. And that's what, what the conflict was at school. So I did that, I suffered that, then went to engineering and then suffered horrible racism at the hands of white male engineers and because oppressed people can oppress as well then i suppose absolutely is the, is absolutely. the thing that you're saying there yeah absolutely yeah. and then so after after i left otis i was like i need to know more about my black history so i started going to meetings uh you know where we'd sit and discuss history and discuss how 
you know, the, the, the history books have been rewritten and, and the lies that have been, you know, said about black people and the Africans and, and the fact that we were not primitive, that we had, we, we you know, we had engineering things like Egypt was, you know, when you watch Cleopatra played by Elizabeth Taylor, you'd think that Egypt was all white people and Egypt is North Africa, it's black people, it was black people, you know? So the way that they whitewashed history, I started learning about that. Now these meetings I, I discovered later were Nation of Islam meetings, but I was already already too entrenched, and I was like, "Well, looks like I'm Nation of Islam." So then I became a Muslim for a while, and uh, <laughs> and how I got into performing was through them. I started to, you know, I went to various meetings. I did Nation of Islam, and I started going to other sort of activist groups and. and and they were fundraising one day, and they were like, we need poets, we're raising funds for our, you know, for the local black community, you know, we need poets, we need dancers, we need storytellers for this fundraising event. And me and a couple of friends of mine were always messing around doing our mum's Nigerian accents, so I wrote what I thought was a play. <laughs> a I serious play? <laughs> well, I, I, I thought it was just a play. It was a play. <laughs> it was a play. I thought it was a play, that we were all going to play these characters. And obviously when we did this play... People pissed themselves laughing. And I was like, this play is very funny. I didn't realise I'd written a comedy sketch. But I was like, this is a really funny play. I want to do this again. And then we started performing this play at various talent shows. And we just kept winning. With this one sketch that I'd written for us three girls, we just kept winning all these talent shows. And I was like, oh, this... I like this. I want to I do this. And we were winning little grand prizes and things. And how I discovered stand-up was uh, one day uh, we were in, in the final of a competition. The other two girls didn't turn up. One of them had been burgled. The other guy, girl went to her house to help her. And I was at this final of this competition and I was about to go on stage and my, my two other friends weren't there to do the sketch with me. So I was forced to go up on stage and just talk for five minutes. And I just talked and, and did funny stuff and killed. And people were like, oh, you're a comedian. <laughs> and I was like, what is that? But whatever it is, <laughs> I like it. And then, yeah, so I was like, well, how do I do this comedy thing? And then I found out about it. And so I started writing material, writing stories. And then I found out about these two black comics, Jefferson and Whitfield, who, who, uh, who were doing this workshop, how to get into comedy. And I went already with 10 minutes of material written. And I went and did that. They did like a four-week workshop, and at the end of it, you got to perform at this little theatre in Camberwell, South London. Uh, and, and every black comedian, black promoter came out, and I performed on this showcase. Did really well. And then afterwards, people come up to me and I'll give you a fiver if you do my show. I'll give you a tenner if you do my show. I'll give you twenty quid. And it just built from there. And I just started doing stand-up. And I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold off and going back to engineering for a bit and see how this. Comedy See how it plays out. out. Yeah, and that was 27 years ago. <laughs> yes! Well, I love it because I love, because what I was going to ask you was the influences and political moments, but it sounds like your life, yeah. like you have no choice but to be political when you're put into a job yeah. where your union won't represent you, yeah. where you're discriminated against for being a woman and for being black. Yeah. Like you've got this kind of double discrimination happening. Yeah. So then you join, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you join the Nation of Islam because I was going to ask you what big political moments do you remember? Or what were your earliest sort of political things that you remember seeing? But I guess that's right up there, right? Because, yeah, look, you know, just by virtue of who I am. I am a walking political statement. So I, I was forced into thinking politically from a very young age because I was like, why do white people hate me? And why do other black people hate me? I don't get it. Why is this happening? And so I, you know, and then I had to look into that and study and then realise why. It was all a miseducation, you know, with, with, when it came to black people, it was a miseducation. And, 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 you know, we've been brainwashed into believing that we're inferior. So, yeah, that was my first political awakening, and that was by virtue of joining the Nation of Islam. I left eventually because, uh, you know, I wore the hijab and everything. I like, I did the whole Muslim thing. I was up prayer. Well, I didn't pray five times a day because I couldn't quite make that dawn prayer. <laughs> so I, <laughs> You're I like, was, I need a lion. Yeah, I was like, I can do five times a day, but that dawn prayer is not for me. So I was never a very good Muslim. And um, also, I was not used to, you know, I'm a very outspoken person. And uh, so 
Never. No. What? In, yeah, and in the nation of Islam, you know, the, the women were very, I'm not going to say subservient, they weren't, they were very, you know, they ran the meetings, all, but they tend to be the ones baking the bean pies, and it used to be the men talking all the time. And I'd ask too many questions. So I was like, okay, so nation, this whole white man has been created in a test tube thing by an evil scientist called Yakub. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I, I, can, can we can we go a little bit deeper into that? Because I'm not really sure about the science. So I asked too many questions and they didn't like that. So eventually I was like, yeah, this is not going to work for me. I love the black history teachings of it. I love that I was made to feel proud of my Africanness, whereas at school I'd been made to feel ashamed of it. And I, you know, I tried to deny my Africanness at school because I was so embarrassed by it because I was being teased so much about it. So the nation, I thank the Nation of Islam for that, for... It gave you, so it gave you some things that you still hold on to. It gave me back my pride in my culture and my people. It gave me back that, but then the, you know, the Muslim side of it, the, not the Muslim side of it, it's not, it's not, because it it literally, Islam is a beautiful religion if you just followed the religion and didn't butcher it for your own purposes. Same as Christianity. This is why I'm not religious in any way, because I believe most religions have been butchered and, you know, manipulated by men For game. So I, I don't yeah i don't subscribe to any of them but yeah the nation of islam i did not like not being able to ask questions like i wanted to and having men trying to stifle my robustness let's go that way yeah so in the end i just went let's let me just leave and just go my own way this was great education i've learned a lot i'm going to move forward with my life so i left the nation but then you know, and that was my first performance. And then I started getting into stand-up. And then, you know, my life opened up in different ways that I never thought could happen. I just remember you as being a room destroyer and a person who I was like... And I remember seeing you in a sketch show on TV. Did you do anything with Curtis as well? Curtis yeah, Walker. we did a show called Blouse and Skirt, which was Blouse the pre- and Skirt is the one, yeah. Oh, it was the, the predecessor to Mock the Week, but it was a black comic. Right. So right. obviously they didn't give us any budget, put us on in the middle of the f-ing night and cancelled it up, you know. But it was, we'd sit on stools and talk, and, and do jokes and, and, and sketches about the news of the week. And it was a very popular show, but it was basically, BBC had gone, oh, we've got to sit this diversity quota. You know, we haven't got enough black people on TV. Let's do this black show. And they chucked us on in the middle of the night and didn't promote it at all. Setting uh, it up to fail. Yeah, they set it up to fail. It. And the second season of it, they were like, oh, this week is going to be on. It's like they wanted to get it done and over with. They're like, this week is going to be on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 11 on Tuesdays and 11.35 on Thursdays. And then next week is going to be on Mondays. So we, we didn't even have a regular time slot so people can go, oh, tune in. They set us up almost deliberately to fail. It was on at different times every week. And this was before, um, you know, TiVo and, and DVRs. This was when it was just VCR. So... Yeah, they set it up to fail, but it still became super successful on uh, for black. I became a star on the black comedy right, off scene that show. from that show, and that was within six months of me starting doing comedy. Oh my god! I was on yeah. the show, <laughs> and so I became a star, and I was doing my first hour set to an audience of people who'd come to see me and me alone within ten months of starting doing comedy. Wow, that would be unheard of now, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. That would just be unheard of. Although I do, I am seeing people come through. I hosted something for TikTok the other night. I am seeing people come through, get followings on there and go, yeah. oh, okay, this will be interesting to see if this will be the way. Yeah. That, or the thing that now propels them. That show now just doesn't exist now yeah. in the UK. And then Mock the Week came and... Let's talk Mock the Week. So Mock the Week came in and said, do you want to come do the show? Yeah. At the time I was jumping through hoops for the BBC right. and whoever. I was jumping through hoops trying to get on. You know, I'd, uh, you know, my agent at the time was like, listen, just, you'll, you'll get your own show. They kept dangling this carrot in front of my face. You'll get your own show. Just jump through the hoops, do all the shows that they ask you to do. And, you yeah. know, eventually you'll get your own thing. So I was thinking like an engineer at that time. I do these things. I get this qualified. I get this gig. And that's how I was thinking. So I was jumping through the hoops. Every talking head they invited me to do, I did it. And then I ended up getting, you know, 
disrespected for the number of talking heads that I did. And I'm like, well, these other white comics did all the same talking heads. Oh, yeah, I was going to say. Why am I the only one that's getting, oh, all she does is these talking heads. But that stopped me from getting certain things because they're like, oh, she's the talking head girl. It's so frustrating that, yeah. you, that, that you could be discounted for a piece of work for enough, for taking another money gig. Yeah. That's wild to me. Also, are you doing the job? I'm on TV being funny about a thing. Yeah. That's my job. Yeah. So why are you going to discount me for another thing when I'm doing my job? Well, I got a lot of that. They wouldn't, like, I've never been on Ten and a Half Cats, whatever the show was called. Is it Ten and a Half Cats? <laughs> I love the uh, eight out of ten cats. Oh, but yeah, yes, whatever. yeah, yeah. I've never yeah. been on that show. I've never been able to get on any of those shows. They wouldn't book me. I wasn't seen as cool enough. Oh, she's the talking head girl. You know, I got a lot of that. But I was jumping through every hoop. I was doing every show that the BBC asked me to do because they'd been dangling this carrot in front of my face. I did the Lenny Henry show. I, I wrote sketches I, I created these sketches I created these characters I was doing my character um Tanya you know I don't think so before <laughs> before Little Britain's Vicky Pollard yeah before Catherine Tate's Lauren those characters came after mine but they catapulted their creators and they got their, their own shows right yeah. and I did the and nothing just nothing so it just kept happening, happening to me over and over again. I just kept creating these things and doing really well on these shows. And they'd go, see, one more step, just do this. And then... But somehow we need you to prove it again and prove yeah, it again and prove it again. I myself and prove myself. And it, it just wasn't happening. They just, and then it got to a point where other younger black women were coming through. And as it is for black comics, it's like a nightclub policy, one in, one out. So then they started... I was getting passed over for, for promotion in a certain way. Right. They'd go, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Gina's been around for ages. She's not really the fresh new thing anymore. So then they go over me and go and give a show to Justin G. Or Andy Osho was getting a lot of stuff because she was a much more palatable version of what I was. She was a younger, prettier. She wore the, the cute dresses. She was, you know, a more palatable version of me. So that's what was happening. And I was like, what the f- there's a million white guys on TV. Why can't there be more than one black woman? Really? So Mock the Week, I was their token funny black girl. Right. You know, they, I was like, well, it's TV. So I kept doing it. But I was, but towards the end, I wasn't enjoying it because I was like, I'm just on this show. Like Russell Howard yep. went from Mock the Week to selling out stadiums and whatever. Off his appearances on Mock the Week because he was given these opportunities. He'd, he'd, get, he'd be on the show, then... They'd give him other stuff, and then he got his own other show, and then he got his own stuff. And I was made just as many appearances on the show, and nothing. So I was like, what is the point of me doing this? And then I was like, well, f- it. I'm not going to be their token black girl, that they can bring up my name every time they get accused of not booking enough women. They go, yeah, but we've, but we've had Gina. But we, but, we, but, we, but we had Gina. Gina's been... So I, I stopped doing the show because I was like, I don't want to be used like that. You either yeah. give me my show and let me have the same trajectory as the Russell Howards and the Michael McIntyres who, Michael McIntyre used to open for me back in the day. Like, I used to be a headliner right. he yeah. would be opening. Yeah. I remember one time we did a show in Japan and he didn't have the cab fare to get to the airport. So I got a cab from my house, picked him up at his house and paid the, the cab fare to get us to the airport for this show in Japan. Six months later, he's selling out Wembley. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very, very frustrating. So frustrating. That they, you're not, you're not being seen in the same way, or you're not. And did you ever feel like fully comfortable in the show? Oh, I was never fully comfortable. And they'd always come up to me and go, "What do you do? We love your Nigerian mum. Can we, can we get in some stuff about? Can you do your Nigerian mum accent?" And then I go, "All right." And then I'd crowbar a joke in, and then I'd get. Dissed and trolled on, on Twitter and whatnot. Oh, look at her. All she does is crowbar her Nigerian mum. And I'm like, that was the producers of the show asking me to do that to make their show less boring and white. <laughs> but I was getting slated for crowbarring my culture into the show. So yeah, eventually I was like, I'm not doing the show anymore. I'm, I'm done. I'm not doing it again. And, I, and, I, and I'm, I, by this point, I was completely frustrated. And I was like, I don't want to end up being one of those comedians sitting in the green room jealous and bitter of the younger comics coming through and doing well i need to get out of here it's it's never going to happen for me in england you know they've got they they gave jocelyn g her own show the show that they promised me that i was going to get and then asked me and then to pour salt in the wound asked me to write on her show so i was like uh, <laughs> are you guys yeah, taking right. the piss and i'm 
and, and it's not about Jocelyn. I'm, I was happy for her. But I knew that the way this industry works, she's yeah. got a show. That means I am never going to get a show. They're saying there's no space for you. Yeah. You, if you're being made to feel like there's not space for you here. Yeah. There's not so, space for you. I was like, I've got to get out of it. And it'd been my dream to live in America since I was four years old. You know, even when I worked as an engineer, I worked for Otis, which was an American company. So my plan had been to go to America my entire life. I, I'd always thought that I was born in the wrong country anyway. So I was like, you know what? By hook or by crook, I'm getting to America. And I remember you doing Last Comic Standing. I remember watching, was it the first series that they came to the UK yes. for? Was the second? Yeah, it was the, the first, first ever. And how I got on that, which was quite funny, because I'd been on at the, the comedy store a couple of years earlier, and Paige Hurwitz, who, were, who was the producer of Last Comic Standing, she was at the comedy store in London with Kathleen Madigan, who, was, who ended up being a judge. So they were in London on, uh, doing the comedy store, and I did the comedy store and ripped that night, so Paige never forgot me. I'd already applied to be on Last Comic Standard before they'd even decided to come to England to get comics from outside America. <laughs> right. I was at Just for Laughs in fe- uh, Festival in Canada and I saw a comedian co- being introduced uh, and they were like, Ros G from Last Comic Standing. And I was like, what is this show? And I Googled it and I was like, oh, it's like an American Idol, but for comedians. And I called my agent in England and I was like, listen, there's this American show called Last Comic Standing. Uh, it's like American Idol for comics. I want to be the first British comic to be on that show. Get me on that show because I need to get out of this country. So I was doing that before they even decided. Them. So the universe just worked in such a way that I was doing that. And at the same time, Paige was talking to them going, we need to go outside of America to get comics. And I want, I've seen this girl called Jeannie Ashray and I want her on the show. So the, the universe com- you know, collided in a wonderful way. And, and that's how I got on the show. Because I, was, I wasn't even in England when they came to, to audition people. I was in Australia at the time. And uh, I did my audition in Sydney. <laughs> right. And this was a huge platform then, an opportunity for you to get to America, have aud- American audiences Absolutely. or eyes on your work. Yeah, when I did and... the semi-final, the semi-final was in Los Angeles. And NBC, the channel that the show is on, they got us all two-year work visas. Right. So I called up the lawyers and I was like, so let me get this straight. Even if I get knocked out of this competition in the first episode, I can stay and work in America for two years. And they're like, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a two-year work visa. So, yeah, you can live and work here for two years. So I immediately got rid of the Mercedes, sold my house, gave away and sold everything I owned, and I turned up for that semi-final with two suitcases, with everything I owned left in it. And I was like, I threw a big party at my house before I left for the semi-final. And I was like, I've got two-year work visa. I'm going to America. I'm not coming back. And they were like, you're crazy. It's only a two-year visa. You're going to have to come back after two years. And I was like, trust me, I'm going to turn that two-year visa into a green card. And into I am never coming back to this country. Goodbye. And yeah, I went. And did last comic standing, got knocked out at the final. I did the semi-final, got to the final 10, got knocked out in the first episode and stayed in America. That was 13 years ago. I find it fascinating um, that you're like, I put everything in the suitcases because sometimes I feel like you've really got to go there and say, I'm giving myself no out. This has to work. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I'm not going back. You know, I'm going to make this work. This has been my dream to go to America and live in America and do comedy. There is nothing for me in England. There is nothing for me. So I'd rather start again from scratch. And if I don't make it in America, I can, on my deathbed, I can go, well, at least I tried. I, I gave it a good run. I gave it a good go. Yeah. So, yeah, I was like, I'm not going back. I sold my house. I was like, I've got nothing to go back for. I'm going to make this happen. I'm heading into season three of my sitcom. It's Bob Hart's Abishola. Bob Hart's Abishola, yeah. And I remember seeing you announce this and I was like so excited because I think I'd seen you on stage at the improv. It was a time we were both in LA. Yeah. And you were telling the, t- the story of how it came about. Yeah. How you didn't know who the producer was. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know who the f*** that movie was. It was just so embarrassing. But also it's quite refreshing for Americans to have a Brit person going, oh yeah, I just... Like not be as bothered yeah. or not be as um, outwardly excited as some of the Americans would be. To... Yeah, and I kind of think that's why Chuck liked me because I was like, well, okay, well, this could work. This could, you know, whatever. I was not, 
You know, because some people, they get in front of him, they get super nervous and they want to pitch jokes, pitch jokes. I've got to be funny, I've got to be funny in front of this guy, I've got to be funny, I've got to be... And I was just like, I was confident. I was like, I've been in stand-up for 26 years at this point. I'm like, I know I'm funny. So I was very relaxed in the room when I'd throw a joke in and they'd go, ah. And then I, you know, I was very chilled about it because partly I didn't know he was, partly I kind of didn't care that much because I've been doing really well in America and I've made my specials. If this doesn't happen, something else will. Yeah, I've been building my brand. So I wasn't like desperate at that point. I was just like, all right, I listen to what you got. In fact, I turned it down. Right. Yes. That's what I remember you saying. Like, I'm not going to go. F- you were in New York, right? Yeah, so basically I was living in New York. I was having a wonderful time in New York. I'd been in New York for six years. I was doing clubs at the weekends. I was making a nice living. I, I was filming my own specials and selling them. I was making a very nice living and traveling and I was loving life. And uh, I got a call out of the blue. My agent calls me out of the blue and goes, Chuck Laurie wants to meet you. And I'm like, Who, who's, who's Chuck Laurie? And he was like, Are you put the fucking phone down, Google him and call me back, you <laughs> dumb twat. So obviously I Google Chuck Lowe and go, oh, two and a half hours. I mean I never I've never been a sitcom, I never watched those sitcoms. I knew I knew what these sitcoms were. I knew how huge Big Bang was and two and a half men and all the stuff he'd made. So I was like, oh, this is the guy behind all of this. This is great. Cause he wants to meet me, so he's obviously seen me somewhere. And wants to make a project around me. This sounds great. So I call my agent back and go, great. They're in LA. And, and my agent's like, yeah, they're going to fly you over. And I was like, great. They're going to fly me first class. And my agent was like, no. And I was like, well, then I'm not going. <laughs> See, I love that. Because also, there's nothing more attractive than someone who doesn't need a thing. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing that draws yeah. it in more than someone going... I could do it. I could not do it. It's up to you, really. Make yeah. it worth my while. <laughs> yeah. I was like, uh, I've just come off a three-month tour. I promised my girlfriend that I was home for the next three weeks, that I was not going to take any work for three weeks so we can rest and enjoy each other's company. You're about to make me get on a plane to LA for a meeting. I'm not going to economy. He, he, he wants to meet me. And, I, and you told me to Google him. And I Googled him. And he's worth more than half of the churches. So... <laughs> They can afford a first-class ticket. And this is Warner Brothers, isn't it? Warner Brothers can afford a first-class ticket. So go back to them and tell them I'm more than willing to come for this meeting, but I'm not coming in in, in coach. So he calls them back. And then 45 minutes later, he calls me. goes, all right, flying you out first class. And I was like, there you go. There you go. Start as you mean to go on, though. Exactly. Start, that's a, it's a status thing of going... Yeah, so immediately they obviously You want me know to take that, you seriously? Yeah, they already know that I'm not a person that that takes bullshit from that. So I get into a meeting and it's, you know, Chuck Lorre, it's Eddie Gordetsky, it's Al Higgins, the two other guys who exec produce a lot of his shows. I get into a room with them and we're chatting away and he's like, and Chuck is like, okay, so I suppose you want to know why you're here, why, why you're here. And in my head I'm like, yeah, I've just flown halfway across the country. Yeah, I want to know why I'm here. <laughs> and he's like, well, you know, I really love Billy Gardell. And in my head I'm like, well, that's not a good start. Who the f- is Billy Gardell? And he's like, and I want to make a project with Billy Gardell. So I'm like, okay. In my head, I'm like, what the hell has this got to do with me? <laughs> and he goes, and, he, and he's like, do you know Billy Gardell? And I didn't know who the hell Billy Gardell was. But his eyes shift behind me, and I kind of look, and I see a massive poster of Mike and Molly on the wall, which is the right. sitcom that Chuck made with Billy Gardell. And he's like, I want to do another show with Billy Gardell. And, uh, but this time, I want his love interest to be a woman of African descent. So I was like, oh, okay. So do you want me to be that? To play that character, yeah. Yeah, and Chuck was like, not necessarily. And I was like, in my head, I'm like, then what the f*** am I doing here? That's in my head, <laughs> But he goes, you know, um, you know, we, we want to make this character a Nigerian woman, but we, you know, we're three white guys. We don't know how to, we need a Nigerian comedian to help us create this so we're thinking of bringing you in as a consultant and I, in my head I'm like consultant what the f-? yeah what's so, this so in my head I'm like this is some bullshit Cons- you want me to consult on all things African this is what you're, you've flown me across the country so in my head I'm furious I'm furious but in the room I'm like stay calm Gina you know look just just stay calm just ask questions and just pretend you're interested and then you can tell them to f- off later so I was like, okay, okay, so you want me to consult and help you? Uh, fine, that, that sounds very interesting. Uh, so what, what are you thinking of calling this this character? And uh, 
one of the guys, it wasn't Chuck, it was one of the guys, goes, well, think of calling her Lupita. And I was like, after Lupita Nyong'o. <laughs> who is Kenyan and not Nigerian. <laughs> and who was born in Mexico. That's why her family called her Lupita. I can pretty much guarantee there is not another f***ing African on the planet called Lupita. <laughs> so you really are going to need some help. Yeah, yeah. In this show. <laughs> and it was all kind of it. And then I and then I said to him, so well, and then I'm still trying to hold on to hope. So I was like, so how did you guys find me? Did you see me on the Daily Show? Did you see me on the Tonight Show? Did you see my three Netflix specials? Have you seen me on Dev Comedy Jam? You know, which one of my bodies of work did that, that, that brought that brought you to me? And they went, oh, we um, we googled Nigerian female comic, and you were the best one that came up. <laughs> oh my god so my fury doubles this is the epitome of white privilege right here that you can spend several thousand dollars flying me across the country and put me up in a five-star hotel off a google search and didn't even know they didn't even know that i'd been on the daily show they didn't know any of this they'd done no research they were like oh she's funny let's get her over it so anyway, I left that meeting and called my agent and I was like, absolutely not. I, this sounds exploitative. I have no interest in this. Say it, tell them thank you, but no thank you. I have no interest in this. And my agent was like, mm, yeah. are, you, are you sure about this? And I'm like, 100% sure. I don't want to do this. But um, I think in the back of my mind, I knew that I may be I had my best friend, Lila, in London, and my younger brother, Edwin. Those are the guys are my advisors. Like, I, call, right. I call them up when I think I'm about to f*** something up. Right. So I called them up and I was like, listen to this f***ing bullshit that they tried to make me do. I ain't doing it. It's, it's rubbish, but I'm just letting you guys know what happened and how shit it is. And hopefully you'll agree with me in turning this down. And the two of them like, were like, what the f***? Are you a f***ing idiot? <laughs> And I'm like, huh? What? What? I thought you'd have... They're like, my brother's like, you're an idiot. This is Chuck Lorre. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> like, you've been complaining how there's no opportunities for you in this industry and how you've been banging your head up against the glass ceiling. And here an opportunity drops in your lap and you're going to turn it down because you're so f***ing myopic and blinkered. Are you crazy? So he screamed at me for two hours. Lila screamed at me for two hours. And I was like... Ugh. All right, fine. I'll go into another meeting with them. And so I, you know, I'd been flown in for this meeting on a Monday morning and I was going to be flying back on the Tuesday. I'd said to my agent, get me out of here. Get me another flight back on Tuesday. And I was like, right, fine. I'll stay till Wednesday and I'll go in and meet them again. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I, my attitude was very... Ugh. So I went in and met them again. We sat in a room and then they just started asking me questions about my life. And then I was like, and I just started saying to them, listen, all right, if you want to make a show with Nigeria, here, here's what's what. She's got to be Nigerian. She's got to be dark-skinned Nigerian. You're not getting no Halle Berry-looking bitch because this is what Hollywood does. You always get these black women that that are close, the closest to the white ideal of beauty. If I'm going to be involved in this show, we're not doing that shit. So I started laying down rules immediately. And going, when I watch TV shows with Africans, the accents are horrible and you guys don't give a shit because you don't, to you, Africa is a country, even though it's a continent with many languages and many countries, many dialects, many traditions. We're not doing that. We're going to do this. We're going to do this properly. And they were like, yeah. So they, they were listening to me. So I was like, in the back of my head, I was like thinking, well, they're listening. They seem to be genuine. So maybe I could help them and consult on this thing. And so I started, I couldn't help myself. The creative juices started flowing and I started going, right, here's what the characters could be, this, that and the other. And I started creating stuff. And I could see them looking at each other going, this could be good. And um, basically, in the end, I ended up staying, instead of a, a Monday night, Monday meeting, flying back on Tuesday, I ended up staying three and a half weeks. I made <laughs> two days worth of underwear last three and a half weeks. And then they then went back to my agent and said, we love this girl. We want to keep her. Forget consultant. We need her to help us create this show. So we're bumping her up to co-creator and producer on this show and writer. So I got bumped up. Now you got some clout. So now I've got clout. So I'm thinking, okay, fine. And so then I start creating characters. And then I'm like, well, I'm a comedian. This is an opportunity for me. There's no way I'm going to create a sitcom and not be in this bitch. 
Yes. Yeah. So I started, and I've always wanted to be the funny best friend in someone else's sitcom. I didn't want the pressure of holding a sitcom in my name. I just want to be the funny friend who comes in, kills, steals the scene and bounces. <laughs> so yeah. I started saying, as we were writing this thing, I started saying, you know what, Abishola really needs a friend. She needs a confidant. She, think she needs a so I created this character called Woman on the Bus. She didn't even have a name. She was just Woman on the Bus. And I created this character knowing that that was the character that I wanted to play. They didn't know it at that point. Right. They thought I wanted the role of Abishola. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so once we'd written the pilot... And I was about to go back home to New York. Chuck comes in and goes, okay, we've written the pilot. We've sent it in. If CBS likes it, we're going to start casting. Now, if you want to play the role of Abishola, you're going to have to audition with the other actors. You know, we can't just give it to you. And I looked at Chuck and I was like, I don't want the role of Abishola. I don't want that. And he was like, what? And I was like, I want, and I pointed at the board, and I was like, I want woman on the bus. And Chuck looked at me and went, you're very f***ing smart. <laughs> I created that role for myself. And this was a character that I'd been waiting to bring to television for 25 years. You know, I'd done variations of it. It was a variation of my mum character. It was a variation of all the Nigerian female characters in my life. So even though she didn't even have a name, and in the pilot, my character had two lines, I knew that once they saw what I was bringing, that that character would be featured more. I knew it. I knew it. I was like, they don't know what they've got because they only Googled searched me and found one clip of me and, and, and got me off of that. They didn't know the body of work that I had from England. They didn't know what I'd been building for the last 26 years. So I knew once they saw what I was bringing, they were going to love it. And we shot the pilot. We cast the show. We shot the pilot. And they picked up the show. So I had, to, I had three weeks to move from New York to LA. So I literally wow. bought a house on impulse. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, I was like, yeah, I was like, I've got three weeks to move to LA. Um, I don't want to rent. I'm just going to buy a house because the way I sold my house in England, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing this, I'm, put, I'm manifesting this That shit. energy. Yeah, yeah. So I'm buying a house because this show's getting picked up. Yeah. In fact, I bought the house before the show had been picked up because we shot the pilot in April. And I was like, when do we find out if the show's going to be picked up? And they were like, May 15th. And I was like, and when do I have to be here? And they were like, June the 2nd. And I was like, I've got less than three weeks between May 15th and June 2nd to get over to LA and set myself up in LA. So I was like, I'm going to buy a house. And, uh, if the show gets picked up, great. I move over and move straight, straight into my new house. If it doesn't get picked up, well, then I've got a really expensive rental property. <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, you manifested it, right? You go. I manifested it and it got picked up. I'm acting in faith. Yeah. I'm acting in faith that it's going to happen. Yeah. And I just move towards that. And if it doesn't, then something else will happen. It'll work out. Like you say, yeah. you've got a rental property in LA. Yeah. But sometimes you have to move towards it. Yeah. Yeah, so we got picked up and I moved out. And now you're on series three. And now I'm on series three. And uh, I haven't hit that glass ceiling yet, but I'm getting very rich. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to ask you about some of your tiny revolutions in the work itself. So your process when you're creating, when you're doing, when you're writing, creating stand-up, what things have you found that have helped you along that way because a lot of the listeners like to hear that you know Hemingway went for a walk in the morning you've had a green juice at the top of the thing so you're like on a health kick what are the things that you do I haven't got a routine as such even when I was writing my book it was very much spurts I'm not one of those disciplined people that go I've got to write sit down and write for three hours it's always when I get an inspiration I go oh I haven't done like when I was writing the book I was like oh I haven't written for three weeks and I'd sit down and just just sit in a room and just go, I'm not leaving this room until I've done something. And I just write. Done a chapter. And, yeah, I just start writing and just let it flow out of me. I just let it flow. And I just write. I just write for the sake of writing and go, oh, I'll write and then I'll separate the week from the chat later. But let me just let it all just come out. And that's how I, I do. I haven't, what has helped me very much with my process is not looking at other people. Not comparing myself to other people. That, it took a long, long time 
to not do that. And I still catch myself doing it sometimes and then go, stop, Gina. You're doing really well. You're making a show you love. You're successful. Stop looking at other people. And I go, yeah, why? I'm happy now. Stop. But yeah, I, you know, because for a long time I thought like an engineer. I was like, I do this, I get this part, and I have to have this. This this is but Hollywood, this industry is not fair and it's not done that way. It's not a there isn't a proper merit system. The biggest thing it changed the way I thought about my work and what I do, letting go of that merit system and saying there is no merit system. Just be happy in what you do. Enjoy what you're doing. Keep doing it. Keep hustling. Don't expect anybody to do anything for you. Do not wait for the gatekeepers to validate what you do. Just enjoy what you're doing. Just let everything else go. And that process, so every morning when I was getting up, I'd have to say to myself, remember, do not compare yourself to anybody else. Their journey is your journey. Your journey is yours. Look forward. Keep enjoying what you're doing. Be, be happy in that you, you're doing something for a living that you love doing. The majority of people don't get that. They're in jobs that they're just waiting to retire from so that they can live. You have a job that you love doing. I like that you get up in the morning and you say that. I say that to myself every day. I wake up and I go, gratitude. You've got to have gratitude that I've been able to make a living doing what I love for the last 26 years. Just, I've, I've seen the world. I've told jokes. I've, I've travelled. I've stayed in beautiful places. I've done this. And yeah, I'm not where I think I am. And I feel like this person, you know, for a long time, I kept looking at McIntyre and going, what the? You know, like, I think McIntyre's hilarious. I don't care what other comics say. Like, I think he is, yes, he is hilarious. He's hilarious. And he deserves all his success, whatever. But I, for a long time, I kept looking at him going, six months before, he couldn't afford a cab fare to Japan. Yeah. And I was the headliner on the shows that we were doing. Yeah. So I, I constantly kept looking at him. And then as a black person, with the, the limited opportunities that we have in England, I'd look at Andy Osho and I'd look at Jocelyn G and I'd be like, I was doing this before then. I was the first Nigerian female comic talking about my culture and doing this stuff in comedy. I made this shit possible. And yet I get passed over. You know, so I kept doing it. And in the end, I had to stop myself and just go, stop, stop, stop. It's not them. Because it doesn't progress you. It's not them. It's not them. It doesn't progress you. And the only way you can beat this is by staying positive and keep being successful and keep being great at what you do. And they can't ignore you forever. So I want you to tell me before we go uh, about your book, because this is coming out. And I, I think like this whole podcast is a great advert for the book, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Because I imagine some of the stories are in there. Yeah. You know, you get to find out about Gina. Tell us the title of the book, when it's coming out. Can I pre-order it? All of that stuff. Yes, you can. So the book is called Cat Candid. Great title, straight off the bat. One, because I'm left-handed. Two, cack is another word for shit. And as you, in many cultures, the left hand is supposed to be the hand that's used to wipe the ass. Hence, right. cack handed. Uh, another reason why I call it that, because cack handed is another word. Uh, the other meaning for cack handed is uh, clumsy and awkward. And left handed people tend to be considered clumsy and awkward because the whole world is made for right handed people. So if yes. you're next to me at a bar and I'm gesticulating with my left hand, I'm going to knock your drink over. But not because I'm clumsy, <laughs> because I'm left-handed and you're right-handed and you put your drink on your right side on my left. Yeah. And also, it also is an explanation of the the journey that my career has taken, which has been, you know, there have been full, there have been failures, there has been left turns, right turns. It's been awkward, it's been weird, it's been clumsy, the way my career has progressed. So that's why I called the book Cat Candid. It's a memoir. It's basically the first half of my life. Uh, it's from childhood, my parents' history, coming from Nigeria to England, having me, what it was like for me at school, you know, through to my engineering days, through to when I started doing comedy and what I went through in the comedy scene, the first half of my career. And the book kind of ends with me getting on the plane to go to America to do last <gasps> Oh, my standard. God. So there's a sequel coming. So there's hopefully, a sequel. <laughs> if this book does well, there will be a sequel because then, then I can talk about all the other stuff of how I had to change my mindset and, uh, and health issues later on in life and how I changed all, you know, my life. So I couldn't fit it all in one book. So let me just end it on me getting on the plane and hopefully if this book does well, I can write the second book. It's already out for pre-order. You can pre-order it 
in England. If you go to my website, geniashway.com, there's all the links to where you can pre-order it. I'm doing the audio, so I will be reading the book too. It comes out in the UK uh, July 8th. It comes out in America first because it was an American publisher that bought it first. So it comes out June the 8th in the US, but in the UK, July the 8th. But it's already there for pre-order. You can pre-order it now. Yes, get on. And everyone that's listening to this, go get Gina's book, especially if you've loved this because the book will have more of this, yes. more in depth. Yeah. Gina's so funny and brilliant. You're just funny bones, always have been. Thank you, I lovely. love to see you shine. I love to see you do well. Thank I was you. so excited. I felt quite emotional <laughs> when you announced the show again. I was like, get that money. Get oh, it, get it. <laughs> I'm just, every day I get up and I'm, gr- the gratitude, immense gratitude, because I'm like, oh my God, you know, you never know when it's going to hit. And that's the thing. You've got to love what you do. You've got to keep doing it. You've got to keep enjoying You never know when it's going to hit. You never know how or when it's going to A Google search has changed my life. Yeah. Keep the faith. Yeah. You've got to keep the faith and keep doing what you love. And, and you know, and that the day that I made those changes in my head, I was like, I'm just going to enjoy what I do. I'm just going to relax and enjoy my life and enjoy my career. The universe changed it changed yeah. and then suddenly all this good stuff started coming to me because I let go of the negativity and opened myself up for the positive stuff and it all started coming to me the day I made that change thank you for sharing your tiny revolutions Gina this has been amazing thank I'm so you. pleased I got you on thank you Tim you can listen to other programs from The Bugle, including The Bugle, The Last Post, Tiny Revolutions and The Gargle, wherever you find your podcasts. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.